Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you have them, to turn to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the, the passage will be up on the screen. The title of the sermon this morning is, What Shall We Do? Or How Do You pre- Prepare for the Coming of Messiah? Uh, I don't know what it's like in your house when somebody uh, important is coming uh, from out of town to stay with you, like in-laws, for example. Uh, I know when, when Cindy's mom comes into town to visit, especially earlier on in our marriage, uh, things got just a little testy around our house. And the, and the to-do list of things like, you know, rebuild the entire back porch or, um, you know, things along those lines. And we learned pretty early when I say we, Nathan and Katie and Jordan, and I, we kind of learned just, you know, you keep your mouth shut, you keep your head down, and you just do what mom needs to be done because these preparations are very, very important. And I can't wait to inflict that on my children as well someday when I go to their houses. But how do you prepare when somebody important is coming to town? You know, when, you, when you're getting ready to have a, a you know, big Christmas party and have all your, you know, your friends over from work, or you're getting ready to, to in some way celebrate someone's birthday, you know, how do you prepare? Well, as we talk about the coming of the Son of Man, I think we need to look at God's preparation uh, for His Son coming and how that impacts your life and how that impacts my life. Uh, we're going to look this morning at a passage that introduces and, and talks pretty specifically about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, if you remember way back before Christmas, we talked about in one of the sermons, uh, Zechariah, his father, and Elizabeth, his mother, and how they were told that the, the child that was going to be born to them was going to be fulfilling uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, which we're actually going to read in this, in this passage in Luke this morning. Uh, so there was something special about him from the get-go. But what we want to kind of key in on is how did John call the people of his day to prepare for the coming of the Messiah And what does that mean for you and me this morning? Have we prepared for Jesus' coming? Or are we in the process of preparing for? Where are we in that uh, that phase? Because John says very clearly in his message that he is here to be a forerunner. He's here to to get us ready uh, to hear the message of Messiah. So with that in mind, that preparation in mind, uh, Luke chapter 3, the first 14 verses. Hear the word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor in Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trichontris and Lysias, tetrarch of Abilene, boy, I'm glad I got through that verse, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics shall 
is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, it was in your uh, plan and in your uh, providence all along to send Jesus' cousin John to prepare the way. Father, I would ask this morning that, that you would use your word and your Holy Spirit to prepare a way into our hearts as well. Father, we probably have many assumptions about what it means to be in a relationship with God. We probably have many um, perhaps ill-conceived notions of what that might look like. And yet John is very clear and he's very specific about how we must prepare our spiritual houses for the coming of Messiah. So I pray that that word that you gave him so many years ago and is still living and active today would be the word that rules the morning in our hearts and our minds. Father, I pray that you would not let my words get in the way or my sin get in the way of what you want to say to your people today. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness that I would be a tool that you use and that your eternal word would be what changes our hearts and our lives and our minds. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, come and be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I think like, uh, like any good dad, God the Father prepares the way for his son's ministry. I remember when uh, Nate got out of college a year and a half ago, and he said, I'm going to move back to, to St. Louis, and I'm uh, going to look for a job. One of the things I did was I made a list of guys I knew in St. Louis, and I, I just shot out an email to some friends and said, hey, Nate's coming back home. Would you give him an hour of your time, maybe for lunch, or could he stop by your office? He's, he's just trying to network to, you know, to find a job. I think that's kind of the things that, that dads tend to do to help uh, you know, their sons get started on their career, so on and so forth. And I, and I think God the Father takes that uh, to a much deeper degree degree and a much better degree for our lives as he provides for the ministry, for the coming ministry of his son. Verse 2 simply says this, during the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke has given us the historical context of, of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and all of these worldly, very extraordinarily important people uh, in the Roman Empire and in the history of the world. And then he says there's this little guy, John, who's wandering around out in the desert, but the word of God came to him. It didn't come to Caesar in his palace. It didn't come to Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, but rather it came to John who was wandering in the desert. And under God's direction, John's message began to prepare people for the coming of Messiah because John's message was God's message. The word of God came to John. John wasn't speaking on his own behalf. John didn't make up the message as he went along. John didn't think, now how, how can I frame this to get people to understand it? But rather, God inspired John the Baptist so that John spoke God's message. John spoke of God's priorities. God spoke of that which, or John spoke of that which God knew the people of that day and the people in this room this morning needed to hear about the coming Messiah, the results of which are foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Look at verses 4 through 6. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, 
make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. The path is going to be straightened out. Maybe you've been hiking up in, in the hills and, and it's gotten crooked and it's gotten dangerous. And you kind of come to a ridge line and finally it's straight. You know, for a little while you can get above the trees and you, you get some fresh air. And you walk in a straight line for a little while, and it's a much easier journey. You're able to see the, the, and enjoy the scenery around you. That's the same kind of metaphorical language uh, that Isaiah uses. It's going to be a straight path. You're going, to, you're going to be able to get it. You're going to be able to see the message clearly. What's the message? That all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah says people are going to be prepared to receive the Messiah, the straight paths, Low places brought up, twists and turns, straightened out, bumps smoothed over. Why? So that now we can see God's salvation. Friends, part of this preparation is so that you and I will have no misconception and no confusion about what it means to be in relationship with God. Well, what is John's sermon? What what does he come preaching? Well, look at what Luke records in verse 3. And John went all through the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the baptism there. That the baptism is simply an outward symbol of the deeper issue that God is addressing there. The key word in this sentence where we're going to kind of park for a little while this morning is that word repentance. Now, if you've, if you've been around the church at all, you've heard people use the word repentance. If you haven't been around the church at all, you may go, what exactly is that? That's not a word with which I'm familiar. We're going to kind of unpack it a little bit this morning because I think in the church we kind of get used to throwing these words around and we assume everybody is on the same page. But I would guess that if we just kind of went around the room and asked for a definition, we'd probably have a lot of different ideas. So what does the Bible mean when it says John came preaching Repentance. Well, I want to give you three words to describe repentance this morning. As I said, we're going to park here for just a few minutes because I think this is a key to where we go from here. The first aspect of repentance is what I call acknowledgement. It's simply acknowledging that there is a behavior in my life uh, or perhaps an, an attitude in my life. It's, it's a thought that I have. Uh, so it isn't just necessarily what I do, but it's also what I think that is harmful, that is destructive to me and to others. So the the first step in repentance is simply identifying what we call sin, the the brokenness, the things that aren't working in my life. So when I'm I'm ill-tempered, I lose my temper and I'm rude to someone. Uh, When I talk badly to someone or I talk negatively about someone behind their back while they're not in the room, that little word we call gossip. Uh, when I maybe am dishonest with my employer and don't work a full day when I say that I'm going to work a full day, or when I fill out that expense report and I'm a little dishonest on the expense report to put a couple extra bucks in my pocket, whatever the case may be, those things that we do that are inappropriate, the things that we ought to do that we don't do. I see somebody in need and I kind of cross over the other side of the street and go on my merry way and I think more about me than them. We need to identify, we need, to, we need God to identify those areas in our lives that we can acknowledge are displeasing and harmful. In other words, uh, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever prayed that God would actually help you discover your sin? (laughs) That's kind of an unsettling prayer if you stop and think about it. You know, God, I'd like for you to to show me all my sin. Just throw it up here on the screen right now. Now, I hope miraculously it didn't all just appear. I'm not even going to turn around and look. (laughs) But trust me, it's a lot worse than you even know. (laughs) But I think the first step in repentance is saying, Lord, I need to see it. I need to understand what those areas are in my life that are harmful to me, harmful to others, and displeasing to you. 
Because part of acknowledging that is confessing. Yes, that's who I am. I am a broken person. I'm a person that does wrong things. I'm a person that that thinks wrong thoughts. We have to acknowledge that that is true in our lives. That's the first step of repentance, but it's not the only step. The second one is simply the word I'm going to use is sorrow. In other words, I look at these tendencies in my life, and I not only see them as wrong, I not only see them as as harmful to me, I not only see them as harmful to others, uh, I not only see them as offensive to a holy and righteous God, but it actually disturbs me. It actually breaks my heart to see how I treat people. When I, have, when I have thoughts that go through my mind that are displeasing to God, it actually bothers me. And I stop and I, you know, I say, Lord, this is, this is grievous. This is harmful to my soul. And there's actually a sorrow that takes place in my life. I was uh, reading an article this week about a guy named A.J. Jacobs. And A.J. Jacobs uh, describes himself as a secular Jew. And uh, he's the editor-at-large of Esquire magazine in New York City. And the last year, Mr. Jacobs has been on this journey where he, he pulled out a Bible, and not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, and he, and he was reading it as much as he could from cover to cover several times during the year with the whole goal of trying to obey everything that was in the Bible. Now, I wish he just called me because I could have saved him an awful lot of time. You think about that calling. You think about that perfect obedience. So we're going to talk about Jesus' perfect obedience at about four months. So stay tuned for that particular sermon. But Mr. Jacobs tried to to spend a year doing everything that the Bible said. And this interview is is kind of a net result of of what he discovered. And the uh, interviewer asked him this question, what did you learn about yourself? And here's how he answers. One thing I learned was how much I sinned. That was a little disturbing. But once you start to pay attention to the amount that you lie and gossip, and covet, and even steal, I was taken aback that it was a real eye-opener. I don't steal cars, but even something like taking three straws from Starbucks when you only need one, that could be considered stealing. I became very aware of taking other people's things without asking. He goes on to talk about, um, uh, about forgiveness and how he needed to learn forgiveness and how uh, whenever he and his wife got into a spat, he would actually write down her mistake and what she did wrong uh, to keep track of it so that he could then hold her accountable for her, for her misbehavior. Uh, and he said he had to tear that book up and, and throw it away. But at the end of the conversation, he asked, and, and he calls himself a secular Jew. He doesn't, he doesn't have any faith. And at the end of the, the interview, the interviewer says, well, has there, has there been any faith that's been created in your life? And he said, I started out as an agnostic. I grew up with no religion at all. Throughout the year, I went through all sorts of changes, including believing very strongly in the presence of a loving God. Part of that, because I was praying all the time. And when you pray for a year, you can't help but start to believe in the being that you're, that you're praying to. <laughs> it's good. He says, but in the end... When I stopped praying as much all the time, I sort of settled into a radical different agnosticism. And he goes on to explain that he's a reverent agnostic that believes in things like the Sabbath and the sacredness of of prayer, but doesn't really believe in a God. And he says at the end, but I never did convert. I never did make the leap of faith to accept Jesus as my Savior. Friends, I I don't bring this up to pick on Mr. Jacobs whatsoever. I think he's, he's a very sincere person, but I do want to make a point. I think spiritually it is very, very dangerous to identify your sin and then ignore your sin. If there isn't an emotional reaction to the sin in my life, 
then I haven't experienced repentance. There needs to be a brokenness in my life. So not only do I pray, God, would you show me my sin that I might acknowledge it, but the second prayer of my lips needs to be, Father, would you, would you create in me the proper amount of sorrow for those things which I think and do that are displeasing to you and so harmful for others? Repentance is acknowledgement, it's sorrow, but it's also one other thing. It's a turning away from my sin and turning to God and putting him at the center. And it has to be both of those, friends. I think very often in repentance, I'll hear people say it's a turning away from sin, and I don't, I don't disagree with that. But that's only half of the process because you, you can't turn to a neutral position. There's no neutrality in a spiritual world. There is good and there is evil, and there's no in-between. And if I simply try to ignore my sin or try to, try to move myself away from it, I'll get sucked right back into it. Unless I am committed to making Jesus Christ to the center of my life and having God rule in my heart, then turning away from sin will only be a momentary uh, quick fix. It will not ultimately solve the deep issues of my heart. And as Bono said, you know, the thing I love to pray is, your kingdom come, your, your will be done on earth. And what that means when I pray that is that I want God's will in my life. And God's will is for me to see my sin and abhor my sin and be broken over it and turn to him and cling to him for my forgiveness and for my grace and for the mercy that I so desperately need in my life. So I want to just interrupt the sermon for a moment here and ask this question. Do I see the transgressions and sins in my life? Those things that I ought not do that I do and the things that I should do that I don't. Do I actually see them in my life? Can I identify them? Can I confess them this morning? Do I grieve over my sin and the consequences of separation and brokenness that my thoughts and my behavior cause in my human relationships and in my relationships with my relationship with my God? And do I pray that God would create in me a desire to leave the spiritually destructive ways behind? and prioritize his presence in my life. We're going we're gonna to pause now for a few moments, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a time of prayer. There's a little bit more in the sermon, about, about another 10 minutes, but we're going to come back to that. In the meantime, I want to give you an opportunity, and I want to take the opportunity myself to, to pray some of those prayers. God, would you please identify the sin in my life? Would you show it to me? And pray that God would give me a proper heart of sorrow that I would turn away from that sin and turn to him. So I'm going to start us off with prayer, and then we're going to give you some time for silent prayer. And at the end of that, Mike is going to come back up, and the musicians are going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. You can just sit quietly and pray while those songs are being sung. You can join in singing if you would like to, but use this time for repentance. Let's pray. Did you hear the Spirit speaking to you? God reveal some things to you? So I was praying, a couple of words came to my mind. One was, uh, they were kind of the same theme. One was impatience, um, just my lack of being willing to go on other people's time and just kind of working on, on my own, kind of demanding that other people keep up with me. The other word that came to my mind as I was, as I was praying was just kind of self-absorption, which they, they kind of kindred spirits there. You know, it's kind of all about, about me. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it in this service. Any. Just if the word came to your heart or your mind about what God's, you know, I'm not going to have open mic night, but is there a word that you would want to share just that God revealed to you? If you, don't, you don't have to if you don't want to, but just call it out if there is. Yeah. Judgmental. Judgmental. Okay. Pride. Pride. Greed. Greed. 
Praise God that he would show that to us in his grace and his mercy. You may want to uh, take some time later on the day to talk to a friend or talk to a family member about it. Uh, James says, confess your sins one to another that you might live. And I think there's something very life-giving about going to somebody and say, boy, I really, this is an area of my life that, would you pray for me? And maybe I need to ask your forgiveness for the way I've treated you and that sort of thing. So let me encourage you in that. One other point this morning before we, before we wrap up, and it's simply this. If, if I become a person of repentance, what impact does that have on my life? Uh, John says this to the crowds in verse 7 in the first part of verse 8. He says this to the, the folks that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Uh, I told uh, Mike Sage that I thought we should use that as our call to worship this morning. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from, from the wrath to come. That would really give you a lot of warm fuzzies, wouldn't it? But but John does us the favor, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of pointing out that we have a serious problem on our hands. And that John says, if you're going to repent, you've got to understand that, that you really, you know, you're kind of like a, a den of snakes. There are some very serious issues in your life. And then he goes on to say, but if there's a change, if, if, the, if the Messiah as he comes is present in your life and is making a difference, then there'll be some fruits of repentance. What does that mean? Well, it simply means there'll be an evidence of a changed heart. There'll be a confirmation of the inward change marked by outward behavior. John goes on to say, be careful to, uh, to reject the false assumptions that you may have of security. The way he says it to these folks, says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, he says, don't, don't think you have confidence in your lineage. You don't have a relationship uh, with God because you were born into this nation or into that nation. And the same holds true today. You don't have a relationship with God because you happen to go to church on Sunday. That's not what being a repentant person is all about. But rather, because of the mercy and the grace of God that's entered your life, there will be a transformation that begins to take place, and that transformation will continue the rest of your life. In other words, you'll look more and more like the Messiah, less and less like your old sinful self. And so the folks ask the natural question in three different places. The crowds in verse 10 say, what shall we do? The tax collectors in verse 12 say, what shall we do? The soldiers say in verse 14, what shall we do? In other words, John, what does this repentance look like? And the answer comes back. Those of you that have two tunics are to share with those who have none. Give give one away. A tunic was like the T-shirt that you wore underneath your shirt. I don't know how many tunics I have in my house, probably 20 or 30 tunics laying around someplace. (laughs) And John says, if you have one and there's somebody who doesn't have one, you give it away. In other words, John says, generosity ought to be the benchmark of a repentant person. The tax collectors come to him and say, uh, what shall we do? And, and John says, you know what? Um, seek after justice. Don't take more than you should. Let people pay their fair share, but don't line your pockets by, by cheating other people. Do to them what you would want done to you. Be just in your business dealings. The soldiers come and say, well, what's expected of us? And, and John says, don't extort people. Don't, don't make up false accusations about people. In other words, prize honesty above your own self-advancement. And above all else, be fair. Be content with what you've earned. I think what John is saying here, quite frankly, friends, is this. What should we do? We should do what comes naturally to repentant people. People of repentance are going to be led by the Spirit of God to naturally be generous. 
People who are led into repentance by the Spirit of God are going to become more and more concerned with justice and less and less concerned with their own self-advancement. They're going to be people who deal with a brutal honesty in their own life and share that honesty with other people. They're going to be people that demand of themselves that they treat others fair and call others to follow that lifestyle. In other words, the vertical change that's happened in your relationship with God through repentance is going to have a horizontal impact every place you turn. And quite frankly, the church needs that today. The biggest impasse we have in evangelism, I believe, is the disconnect that the non-Christian feels when they look at the church and they see absolutely no difference between us and the world. Why is that? It's because they're not looking at repentant people. They're looking at people who say maybe the right things, but deep in our hearts has that transformation truly begun. As God prepares for Messiah to enter into the pages of history and to enter into our lives, has it created within my heart and has it created within your heart a passion and a desire to repent of your sins, to embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to see him change you from the inside out. John Wesley put it this way. If you have inhaled God's love, God's power and forgiveness and salvation, You will exhale God's love into a broken world. That's what repentance is all about. That's why repentance is so uh, so powerful because it not only changes your heart, but it has an impact on changing the hearts and lives of others. It draws you closer to God and it allows you to look at the world through his eyes. Daily godly repentance is essential to the spiritual health of every disciple of Jesus. That's why when God began to prepare for the coming of his son, the Messiah, he he began by saying, we've got a clean house. (laughs) He began with repentance. 